Hello, and thank you for joining me for this episode. Today I have the honor and the privilege of speaking with Dr. Murray Stein. He is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of the Jungian Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich. His most recent book is The Mystery of Transformation. I will include a link in the description below. Uh, Dr. Stein has written extensively on matters of religion and published Jung's Treatment of Christianity as one of his earlier works. I have asked him here today to discuss his understanding and approach to Christianity. Um, Dr. Stein, thank you again very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> and if it's okay with you, can you um, kind of tell us about your background, maybe your background in Christianity, and as well as your kind of when you first became interested in psychology and matters of Jungian thought? Sure. Glad to. Thank you. Um, as a child, I was immersed in Christianity. My father was a Baptist preacher, oh. German Baptist. He was an immigrant to um, Canada in 1930, and uh, he became a um, pastor uh, around 1940. I was born in 1943, and he married my mother, who was Canadian. And she belonged to a small group of people in Saskatchewan who had immigrated to Canada from what was then Prussia, today it's Poland, uh, because they, uh, as a group, they were Baptists or stemmed from the Anabaptist movement in Switzerland originally and didn't want their sons to be drafted into the uh, Prussian army. And so as a group, they... Uh, they pulled up stakes in Prussia and they moved to Saskatchewan, Canada, and they were pioneers. They cut down the trees and and uh, built their farms and so on. And so my father landed there um, as a young pastor. My mother was a school teacher in the town and they got married. I was born in Yorkton, Saskatchewan in 1943. And I grew up uh, my entire childhood in parsonages. Um, in that denomination, which is a very small, uh, originally German-speaking, but then had gradually transformed into a bilingual and mostly English-speaking group of um, um, rather pietistic Baptists, uh, not the type of fundamentalists one knows of in, in America, the Southern Baptists, but um, more European-oriented, but very biblically-oriented. And we went to church three times a week, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. Mm -hmm. And so for the first 18 years of my life, I grew up in the church and memorized the Bible and many passages from the Bible. Um, and uh, we moved around from various uh, parishes through... Uh, uh, the Dakotas and ended up in Detroit, Michigan, when I was in high school. Um, and so uh, it was a very tight-knit family, and within that family, 
we really uh, we lived within the biblical world. Uh, the the biblical landscape was as familiar to me as the geographical landscape we happened to be living in. And because we moved so much, it was actually the um, I would say the the uh, most stable feature in, in my imagination of where we were huh. when I visited Israel for the first time about 10 years ago. Um, um, I have to say, it was very touching. Mm. Uh, because it really recalled my childhood, and the names and places were more familiar to me <clears throat> uh, than many of the small towns where we had lived, uh, people mm. we had known. The biblical figures were our constant companions. Uh, mm. um, we read the Bible before breakfast. <laughs> and that's all long ago. That's my childhood. Um, yeah, yeah. I then uh, had the good fortune to uh, do well in school and high school, and I got a scholarship to Yale University, which was entirely foreign world to me, the secular mm. world, the big world, world I'd never mm. seen before. And so it was a bit of a shock to go into, to step into that kind of a place. But uh -huh. I adjusted quickly, and I loved it because uh, the teachers and the professors I had and the um, the friends I made, um, uh, but it was a very unfamiliar world. I, uh, many of the students came from New York and the East Coast and went to mm. boarding schools and private schools, <clears throat> so it was a very different culture. Um, and I I didn't uh, really see a way for me to enter into that world, culturally speaking, because it was so uh, different from what I had grown up in. And so mm. I uh, gravitated toward uh, the religi religious studies and the Bible. Uh, also, in, in my college years, I majored in English literature, and I had the good fortune to be the student of Harold Bloom, who was one of the great literary scholars of the 20th century. And oh, wow. uh, studied English literature uh, under him and others, and um, and also a professor in religious studies named Hans Frey, who uh, mm. had been born Jewish but converted to Christianity and became an Episcopal priest, and mm. uh, gave wonderful courses on the history of Christianity and um, and the philosophy of um, behind various theological systems. Um, and um, he persuaded me to go to Yale Divinity School. I had lunch with Hans Frey when I was a senior and trying to decide, should I go to law school? Uh, should I go to graduate school in English? What about Divinity School? Um, I was definitely committed to the academic world. Um, mm. And um, he said, well, give Yale, uh, Yale Divinity School a chance. Uh, you know, you can go for a year or two and see if, if it suits you, and if not, you can always move on to something else. 
So I thought I'd give it a try and uh, moved up the hill uh, to Yale Divinity School and really liked it. Um, Very liberal. um, It was originally uh, congregational, uh, Puritan um, um, divinity school created Mm. for the preparation of young men for the ministry. And I wasn't sure that the ministry was for me, Mm -hmm. but I considered it, and I did some... uh, field work in various parishes and and worked with some local pastors uh, during my uh, years at the Divinity School. Okay. Um, but I was never quite convinced that I would um, make a good uh, uh, <laughs> pastor. My father was a very good pastor because he, he was a feeling type uh, and very mm. related to other people. I'm more of a thinking type, more introverted book oriented mm. and he was uh, he was a people person and that's really mm. what you need in the pastoral ministry because you have to be around people all the time it's a very political situation um, mm-hmm. and that was rather distasteful to me I didn't no. I, pr- I preferred being one-on-one with people you can go deeper and you can it's more interesting uh, for me yeah. yeah rather than preaching to groups of people mm. And uh, working in, in groups. So um, it, between my second and third year at the Divinity School, I took a year off and worked in Washington, D.C. in the, oh. in the uh, war on poverty under Johnson. President Johnson was in the White oh, okay. House at that time. He declared war on poverty, and there was a poverty program. And um, I had a position with the... Um, Church of the Savior in Washington, which was very, very interesting, small, very dedicated people to social action mostly, but also very um, deeply spiritual. They they combined social action and spirituality in a very, very um, profound way. And I, um, Gordon Cosby, was the head minister there, and uh, he was a kind of mystic himself, and he preached uh, wonderful Mm. sermons, but also conducted small group experiences. And there was also um, a woman named Betty O'Connor, Elizabeth O'Connor, who was his assistant. And she was very interested in Jung. And she wrote a book called Journey Inward, Journey Outward, which reflected the mission of the church. They had uh, sort of small group programs where you did the journey inward reflection. I, I w- sat in on one that was called "Where Am I?" Not "Who Am I?" but "Where Am I?" Where am I? Where am I in my life right now? And I was 23 years old, and so it was an important question. I'm trying to form an identity, get a vocation, find something that would suit me. And uh, at a garden party. Um, uh, in Washington, um, this would have been in the spring of 1968, a very turbulent year in America. Uh, it's when uh, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy was assassinated and Washington, D.C. went up in flames, the riots. Mm. Um, it was an extremely um, um, difficult time in American history. And um, uh, it was in the spring of that year that uh, Betty O'Connor 
we were uh, debating uh, or discussing why do countries go to war? What is the need for war? Is it just endemic in human nature? I've been reading a book by a man named Robert Ardrey called the um, the um, something imperative. The, um, his argument was that uh, groups will defend their ter- the territorial imperative will de- defend their territories, and if their territories are infringed or threatened they will go to war to protect their territories. And we were in Vietnam. It seemed like Vietnam was protecting its territory, trying to get us out of there. We were fighting <laughs> communism. All of us hated the war. So we were discussing, why do we need this war? And why is there war anyway? And why can't everybody live peacefully? And Betty O'Connor said to me, well, sometime you should re- really read Jung and read, uh, read about the projection of the shadow. Ah. I said, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she said, well, you know, Jung has quite a lot to say about how people get into conflicts and why why they fight with each other. So the next day I went to the bookstore in Washington and asked if they had any books by Jung. And uh, they didn't have much, but they did have one that was Memories, Dreams, Reflections which is uh, Jung's autobiography, autobiographical memoir written with his secretary, Aniel Jaffe. And um, um, I took it home and started reading it, and I was just totally fascinated by uh, got me off the topic of war altogether, um, fascinated by um, uh, especially his uh, account of his inner life and his inner development using dreams. And uh, in all of my studies, even biblical studies, I mean, you do read about dreams in the Bible and how important they uh-huh. were at some points, and visions and so on. But in theological studies, you don't take that too seriously. And, and certainly people today in my world did not pay any attention whatsoever to their dreams. Mm. The, the, the revelation was over 2,000 years ago, and now it's just a matter of uh, reading the texts and learning them and practicing uh um, the um, way of life that's been established in Christianity. Mm-hmm. So this idea that um, individuals would could have um, a type of revelation on their own, that in their dreams they, they could have um, they could have experiences of a spiritual nature, of a guiding nature, of a, what Jung calls a numinous quality, religious experiences. So the notion of religious experience wasn't foreign, but it was very located in church experience. Revival mm-hmm. meetings, baptism, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the sermons, uh, that sort of thing. So it was very restricted to the church setting. But this opened the door to individuals on their own having access to this what you could say, spiritual world. And that mm-hmm. utterly fascinated me. It was new, that was uh, new information. Mm-hmm. And so I um, read that book and started recording my dreams and went back to Yale for my third year. In the meantime, I'd gotten married in Washington to a woman I met at the Church of the Savior. Okay. 
and uh, we moved to um, uh, into the back on the campus um, at Yale, New Haven. And the first person I met coming onto campus was a professor named Russell Becker, who um, I hadn't really paid much attention to before. He was in charge of pastoral counseling hmm. uh, at the Divinity School, and he taught a course in that and, and prepared the young men and women for pastoral ministry and taught them to do some sort of light counseling work using Rogers mainly. Um, And he was the first person I bumped into on campus. And we exchanged greetings and he asked me what I'd been doing. I asked him what he'd been doing. And he said, well, he just got back from Zurich, uh, Switzerland, uh, where he'd been, we had a sabbatical year and he'd spend it at the Jung Institute in Zurich. Wow. I said, what's that? (laughs) What are the chances? (laughs) Yeah. That's how it went, step by step. Hmm. And then I I went into a kind of quasi-analysis with him. He'd learned to do analysis during his year. Wasn't trained Hmm. to be an analyst, but but he was a very skilled uh, clinician and Hmm. uh, counselor. So I saw him twice a week, and we worked on my dreams. And I Hmm. got a job at the... um, at the counseling at the hospital, outpatient hospital in New Haven, New Haven, the uh, public clinic. So I got to know what um, uh, mental health was all about and how people worked with mentally ill patients, inpatient and outpatient. And that was a very valuable experience. It was a halftime job. Hmm. And in the meantime, I rode off to Switzerland to the dean of students at the um Young Institute, whose name was James Hillman. Hmm. And James Hillman later became very famous in, in the United States, especially as an author and a, and a public speaker, hmm. and represented Jungian psychology somewhat, but he really developed his own ideas as well. Hmm. Uh, but at the time, he was in Zurich, and he wrote back a letter, very welcoming, come on over, uh, try it, see if you like it. And so I packed my bags at the end of that year, and my wife and I got on a on a steamship across the Atlantic and wow. <clears throat> ended up in Zurich in September. And I stayed there for four years, then studying to become a Jungian analyst. Well, there are other details to the story, but the shift was from a rather standard form of Christianity, first rather pietistic and Bible-oriented, uh-huh. And then through the college years and divinity school years, much more oriented towards social action, much more liberal theologically, although Karl Barth was still a mainstay among the theologians that we studied at the divinity school. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of Karl Barth. He's also a Swiss theologian. He never okay. met him. They're almost exactly contemporaries. They live very close to each other. But I think they couldn't stand each other. <laughs> Two big personalities, of very mm. different orientation. Mm. And Jung was basically a modern man. And he'd gone through a trans... He also grew up in a parsonage. His father was a pastor mm. in the Swiss Reformed Church. Uh, so I felt a kinship with Jung on that basis also. And um, Jung had six uncles who were pastors, and um, uh, his grandfather on his mother's side was a very famous Swiss leader uh, leader in the Swiss Reformed Church. Mm. Um, 
And Jung was deeply steeped in the Bible as well. He quotes the Bible a lot in his writings. His grandchildren, grandson told me he always carried a copy of the Bible in his pocket on the train. If he had time, he'd open up and read his few passages. One of his most famous works is on the Bible, on the book of Job. Hmm. And um, so this transition from theology and, and religion to psychology was a very easy one for me. Um, hmm. I found so many connections and, and bridges. Um, and um, uh, But on the other hand, it made me into a modern person, too. I think I started out in the pietistic movement, pre-modern, you could say, hmm. living in a biblical world, if not fundamentalist, then still very oriented toward the, the biblical word. If, hmm. if I would express an opinion that my mother didn't like, she would say, where does it say that in the Bible? You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. So kind of proof texting, and that was the childhood. But then... Um, through studying uh, at, a, at another level, studying the, the Bible and theology and hmm. church history and so on, uh, you get a much bigger picture of the whole 2,000-year history. And then hmm. moving into the modern period with Jung and psychology, <clears throat> um, it did uh, change a lot of my ideas and approach to religious life, let's say. Hmm. I've talked a lot. That's that's yeah. the story. No, thank you. Yeah. I was when I graduated. I was thirty years old. I'm now seventy nine this year. Seventy nine. Young man for almost sixty years. Wow, wow. Did you stay? So after you were after you trained in the four years in Zurich, Switzerland, at the institute, um, did you stay over there for a while longer, or did you? Go back stateside? No. Um, I went back uh, to the States uh, upon graduation. I was there four years from 69 hmm. to 73, which were incidentally very, very good years at the Young Institute because of the teachers we had who were first generation uh, Jungians who had been with Jung and could you know, speak from their own experiences of him and his yeah. personality and not just from book learning. Uh, and then I uh, went to Houston, Texas, uh, from Zurich, because they had helped to finance my studies. And in oh. exchange, I had agreed to go to Houston and teach at the Young Center there. And oh. that's where I started my practice as well. Okay. And I lived in Houston then for three years uh, and moved to Chicago, where I entered uh, the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and I did a Ph.D. there under... Peter Holmans, hmm. um, who had written a book on Freud and another book on Jung, and huh. headed up a department called Religion and Psychological Studies. Oh, nice. And I wrote a dissertation there, which became the book that you mentioned at the, the outset. You said you read it, uh, Jung's Treatment of Christianity. Oh, that yeah. It was written as a dissertation under Peter Holmans at the University oh. of Chicago. Wow. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. And I was ordained. Can, yeah. uh, when, I got, when I got to Houston, and this whole time I, I was uh, what's called in care in the Presbyterian Church. I okay. changed from Baptist to Presbyterian uh, at the Divinity School. Huh. Um, 
because it was very liberal, socially oriented, social action oriented denomination. Uh-huh. And they, uh, they recognized my work as a union analyst as a special ministry. They were very wow. liberal in those <laughs> days. So I got back to the States, to Houston. I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and I served in that capacity in the Presbytery in um, Houston and also in Chicago hmm. uh, until, um, until the age of 65 when I was declared retired. Okay. Um, good standing. I, uh, I had connections with the Presbyterian um, uh, people in, in hmm. both places. I wasn't uh-huh. active. I didn't serve a church, but I went uh-huh. to church and I, I um, uh, contributed um, in my own way to the ministry. I, I saw uh-huh. my work as an analyst as a kind of ministry. I still do. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's very personal and it's hmm. uh, different from what most ministers do, but it certainly deals with spiritual as well as psychological issues. Yeah. Okay. Can you, um, can you, how would you define a Christian? Like what are the, what are the prerequisites to be a Christian? Well, uh, many, many types of Christians. Uh-huh. And I've met many different types of Christians in my, in the course of my life as a young I traveled uh-huh. a lot because uh, as we mentioned in the bio, I was the president of the International um, Association for Analytical Psychology, which meant I traveled all over the world. I, I spent time in Russia, I spent time in China, um, Japan, uh, South America, Africa, and many different places. And uh, so there are many different types of Christians. I remember when I was in St. Petersburg one time, this was around 2000, mm-hmm. Uh, and I went into an Orthodox church, and I just observed the people. And um, they have icons, and uh, the, it was mostly older people. And I, I watched an older woman, she was probably 70 or 75, kneeling in front of the icon, gazing into it, saying mm. her prayers, and then touching it and kissing it, mm. and then going on to another station. Now, that's not something I would have seen in the Baptist church. We had no yeah. icons. Yeah. <laughs> we had no picture windows, even. The Protestant, uh, Reformed Protestant, same in Switzerland, the Reformed church, took out all the statues, all the icons, all the symbols. It was all based on the Word. So mm. there's a type of Christian who is rooted in the Bible, and there's a type mm. of Christian who is rooted in ritual, mm-hmm. and there's a type of Christian who who's rooted in an inner experience. That's me. <laughs> I don't uh-huh. go to okay. church anymore. Uh, uh-huh. I haven't for years. I, um, I live in Switzerland now. I moved back to Switzerland when I was 60 years old. And um, I've lived here now for almost 20 years. I live uh-huh. out the countryside near the mountains. And uh-huh. I go into Zurich once in a while uh, to work. And, uh, but I, I do a lot of this type of work, online work now. <clears throat> and um, a church doesn't mean anything for me anymore. I've heard thousands of sermons. I've heard great sermons in Switzerland, too. They're very great preachers. Uh, I heard my father preach three times a week when I was a kid. 
Um, and at Yale, I heard terrific preachers. William Sloan Coffin, one of the best preachers in history, I think. Um, powerful, moving. Uh, so I, I just don't feel a need to hear more sermons. I do read yeah. the Bible occasionally. I study it, uh, especially if I'm writing something or uh, that's relevant to the biblical texts. I've enjoyed visiting Israel a couple of times. Uh, but my um, type of Christian is uh, is someone who's had an inner experience that tells them that Christ is the most meaningful uh, <clears throat> uh, symbol of the divine for them. Okay. Uh, that's the way it is for me. Of all the gods and goddesses, and I've seen and studied many of them, uh -huh. um, they don't speak to me uh, on an inner level. Um, mm. And, you know, Jung had this method mm. called active imagination. And um, you can read his experiences in active imagination in the Red Book. It was published in 2009. These are... Um, it's a record of what he experienced in his midlife crisis. And he went very deep into his inner world, and he experienced interesting figures, among them Christ. Christ mm -hmm. came to him a couple of times. And that can happen on an inner level, that you can have a, a, a spontaneous meeting or conversation or vision or image of Christ. And if that speaks to you as the ultimate message for you, then you're a Christian, I think. Okay. So there are official Christians who belong to the church, you know, pay, mm. pay the dues, tithe, and so on. And then there are these mm. other Christians all over the world for whom Christ is a, a guiding light, the, the leading inner figure of the divine. Mm. So um, what is a Christian? I think it's just somebody who's oriented to the Christ figure in some mm. important way. Hmm. Okay. And how um, can you explain in Jungian psychology? It's about there's a lot of um, maybe the end goal is to be more whole, to be more complete. Um, and I think in a lot of Christianity circles, it's about kind of like perfection. I think of maybe Jesus saying, like, be perfect even as my Father is perfect. Um, can you talk about the difference between? perfection and wholeness and how yeah. you reconcile those. Yeah. 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 Right, right. Well, um, wholeness has to do with mental health, being a mm. healthy person. Okay. okay. Um, and you can be a very spiritual person and not be a healthy person. A lot of saints mm. were not particularly healthy uh, psychologically or mentally. You know, they were rather unstable, unbalanced individuals. Hmm. But um, Jungian psychology, Jungian analysis grows out of the mental health tradition, uh, hmm. only indirectly out of the church, confession, and so on. So in the mental health tradition, um, uh, being of sound mind and um, of whole mind is very important. And that was Jung's orientation as a psychiatrist, as a psychoanalyst, and a practitioner of his psychology. So it's, it's good if, as a human being, you can be healthy and whole, physically, mentally. And a part of that wholeness is your spiritual life. 
Okay, mm -hmm. so wholeness mm -hmm. doesn't exclude the spiritual life, but sometimes the spiritual life all by itself excludes a lot of other aspects of the human being that mm -hmm. can cause um, mental problems, neurosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you repress too much of your instinctual life, uh, you have uh, problems. You might become obsessive compulsive. You might become neurotic in some ways. You might become depressed, uh, anxious. And so what the Jungian analyst tries to do is work toward the goal of wholeness, but not to the exclusion of spirituality. But the spiritual enters into analysis in its own way. It isn't in the foreground, but it comes in through the work. So hmm. if you uh, have someone in analysis with you over the course of a year or two of regular sessions and they're bringing their dreams, you see all kinds of stuff in their dreams. You see their hmm. whole life. You see their history. You see all their problems. You see all their conflicts. But you also see um, uh, glimpses of a direction toward um, spiritual realizations. And hmm. so... Uh, most psychotherapists don't have an eye for that, but as Jungians are trained for that. We're very mm. interested in that. Most uh -huh. Jungians are quite spiritual people, not all. Mm. Um, and there are, like there are many different kinds of Christians, there are many different kinds of Jungians. Mm. Uh, but the ones that I know best, and the, and the sort of characteristic of the Zurich, trained in Zurich school, is that mm. spirituality has a very high position in their um, estimation of what is the good life. Let's say that mm. the, the spiritual life is a very important part of wholeness. Uh, but Jung thought of the human psyche as having layers and levels, all the way mm. down to the subatomic and through the vegetative and somatic and psychological and up into the spiritual, psychological, spiritual, all the way up to the top. So mm. it's a big house. It has many different stories. And you could say at the top story, there is the spiritual room. Mm. And, um, and uh, we encourage people to explore all of those levels and to become conscious of them all, mm. uh, including uh, one of the most difficult, the basement, the shadow level. You know, that's the area where you have impulses and inclinations that don't correspond to your ideals. So if you're a Christian and you have the ideals of being um, perfect or following Christ in his uh, footsteps and giving unto the other as you would have them do unto you, and if they ask for your coat, give them your shirt also, and, you know, all of those high-minded ideals, which are very hmm. beautiful but very difficult to follow, what they repress is your selfishness. Okay, so your selfishness uh -huh. becomes what we call the shadow. It doesn't uh -huh. go away. <laughs> and it will be lived out in uh, unconscious ways. Okay, mm. one of them mm -hmm. is projection. Project the mm. bad stuff onto somebody else, and then you, you know, you condemn them uh, mm. one way or another. Or you have bad moods. Jung said that his father was too good. And when mm. he came home, he was always in a bad mood mm. uh, because he had to be so good in front of his parishioners. 
He had to represent the ideal life, but mm-hmm. he, that wasn't that wasn't him, totally. Mm-hmm. So part of yeah. him, his persona, part of him, but it wasn't that. And so he suffered, and the family got the worst part of it. I saw that mm-hmm. in my family a bit too. My father was always very happy, jovial, positive with other people, uh, helpful. But when he came home, he would always be in a bad mood. Not always, but often in a bad mood. He suffered from physical ailments nobody else mm-hmm. ever saw, but we heard all about at home. Uh, <laughs> and uh, headaches. And, you know, he wasn't... Uh, he, he tried to, to live the Christian life. But Jung said, um, um, it's dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, psychologically speaking, to try to be perfect. It's not good for you. So what we try to do is find a way to balance that. It isn't to become bad and live out the shadow and become a nasty person, um, which is what the shadow would like to do, Um, but to acknowledge that it's there and to weave it in somewhat so that you aren't excessively nice and you can assert yourself and you can take care of your own needs um, uh, to a certain point. You know, we all run into these areas where we have to make a basic decision. Are you going to save yourself or are you going to save the other person? Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to save your own children or are you going to try to save the starving children in Africa? Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel the, the conflict because we know what is the good thing to do, what is the perfect thing to do, and yet we have this need to take care of ourselves as well. And from a psychological point of view, that's not a bad thing. You also deserve to be taken care of. Hmm. So you have to find a balance between giving to yourself and giving to others, taking for yourself and sharing with others, Um, um, living an instinctual life and living a spiritual life. So when when the um, Reformation took place, uh, in the early 1500s, um, the leaders, uh, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, uh, got married. Luther married hmm. a nun. Uh, Zwingli married uh, a woman in his parish. Uh, and they had children. And this was to um, demonstrate that the spiritual vocation doesn't set you apart from normal life. Uh, A lot of priests are mentally troubled because they don't live their their instinctual life. I have a very good friend who's a Jungian analyst. He was training to become a Jesuit and was very devoted to uh, the Catholic um, Church and and to the Jesuit order, but he couldn't do it in a healthy way, and so he left and went into psychology. But he's still a Christian, and he works as an analyst now. He has a couple of children and a wife. So the uh, the Protestant Reformation was an attempt to find a better balance, let's say, between the, the split that, that had been created in the Middle Ages and the early years of the church. Um, but Paul said it's better to marry than to burn, but what kind of a choice is that? You know, um, <laughs> Uh, still, the saints and the priests and so on were all supposed to be celibate. But look what happens when you insist on celibacy. Hmm. Uh, the shadow comes out in horrible ways that, that we've seen in our times, you know, with child abuse and 
yeah. uh, pedophilia and all of that. Um, yeah. So you can't get rid of it. So the question is what to do with it. We were created in a certain way. We have a nature, a human nature, mm. and we have to live with it. What is the best mm. way to live with it? Well, Jung came up with this concept of wholeness, which is inclusive, not exclusive. But I want to emphasize that it doesn't exclude um, the spiritual. Now, in modernity, as it's called, the spiritual was largely excluded. Um, uh-huh. There was a, you know, as Western history developed after the after the Reformation and into the Enlightenment and so on, hmm. the emphasis became on uh, 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 turned to the study of the material world in a scientific hmm. way. And the spiritual world was more or less put to the side and eventually was declared as non-existent. There is no okay. such thing. There are no such thing as spirits, you know, hmm. yeah. um, ghosts and angels and all that stuff. That's um, human uh, projection and nonsense. So it was just eliminated uh, in favor of the scientific method, the study of the material world. And mm-hmm. look at all the progress that's been made because of that intense focus on learning how the material world operates and what we can do to manage it and so on, engineering mm-hmm. and creativity, tremendous um, outburst of um, ingenious creativity that we all benefit from. But yeah. excluded, officially excluded the religious world as it had been known. Yeah. So Napoleon you know, installed reason in Notre Dame uh, mm-hmm. Cathedral God is reason. We're going to live by reason now. Hmm. And, uh, you know, all of philosophy and so on went in that direction for a period of time. Now, I think that's changed in more recent times, and people are taking a, a new view of even mysticism and uh, mystical uh-huh. experiences and spirituality. Uh, the New Age uh, really caught on very powerfully. Eastern religions came hmm. in and showed... Um, a lot of strengths so that people saw that they needed something and they didn't have it in their own culture in Western secular society and they were hungry for it and so they gravitated um, to some of these movements and um, mm. Jung caught the wave of that because Jung also was very interested in Eastern religions all types of spirituality um, and practiced some of them himself meditation and so on um, and so in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, Jung caught the wave of the New Age movement. He wasn't really a New Age person altogether in the California sense, but and drugs, he didn't want anything to do with drugs. <laughs> uh, but that's coming back a bit now, too. Psilocybin and um, yeah. LSD are being used, treating some yeah. types of mental illness, but also for spiritual purposes. I know some people who are doing that in a very careful way. And what they say is that it opens your mind to levels that you uh, that aren't available with your in your ordinary sensate world. Your your mm. senses don't give you access to that, and your mind being trained in a certain way um, and enculturated by your educational mm. system and so on in the secular rational world uh, uh-huh. has closed off those those avenues, but. Uh, the, the drugs can open those windows. And um, and so spirituality comes to some people. I know some people who say that's 
that was the answer. When they found that, they found their way. They found a vision. Uh -huh. And they didn't get hung up on drugs, but it opened the door to a spirituality that they could incorporate in their lives. So I think it's coming back. And Jungian psychology was a way of um, reintroducing spirituality into the modern world. Hmm. Jung is sometimes called postmodern. That's not quite uh -huh. right either, but um, he wasn't modern in Freud's sense of the word. Hmm. Yeah. Freud was a more strictly modern uh, attitude uh, toward Material. Uh, what he called uh, mud mud tide of occultism. He told Jung, stay away from that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, Secretly, he was probably also interested in it, but didn't <laughs> say too much about it. Yeah. Um, I have two two remaining questions, if that's okay. So the first, yeah. you you mentioned, you said something about that's the way that we were created, and um, so when it comes to like our human nature, and we can't, you know, we can't. We can't really be perfect. We we like psychologically strive for wholeness. Like um, it's in our human nature. That's the way we were created. Um, in Christianity, you understand like the the Christian myth of creation and and our fallen nature, and that's a way of understanding how in this world we'll never be perfect. But that doesn't mean we can't like strive for it. But that's the reason the fall explains the reason why we have such a hard time with sin and with missing the mark and without, um, do you have like, do you have a thought on, I don't know if you, you know, maybe if you grew up believing that the creation story was literal or if you took it literal and that that's changed, do you have like a, is that still kind of your understanding of it, of like human nature or do you have a different understanding of it or how do you, does that make sense? Well, what happened was in the 19th century, Darwin yeah. proposed uh, the theory of evolution. And that ran uh -huh. uh, against uh, the biblical account of the creation. That human uh -huh. beings evolved from uh, other species, you know. And um, I remember my mother telling me, don't you believe that nonsense? Uh, uh -huh. We didn't come from uh, monkeys. God created us. Uh -huh. and so I grew up with that, that idea. We are created in the image of God. And we, uh, hmm. Adam and Eve were perfect, and but they disobeyed and they fell. And after that, the original sin uh, has befallen all of us. Um, hmm. well, that's a way of accounting for the human condition. Everybody recognizes that human beings are not perfect, and every every culture, every religion, every philosophy, <laughs> Kant said, "Out of the crooked timber of humanity, you will never make a straight building." Hmm. Um, it, uh, human beings are flawed, mm -hmm. and um, original sin is a way of of um, describing that or uh, naming that, uh -huh. um, and. Um, that um, Christ uh, came to introduce um, a possibility for another kind of life. Hmm. But um, what happened, um, if, uh, if it had happened the way the early Christians thought it would happen, 
uh -huh. that all would be transformed upon death into uh, the being that they saw in Christ after the resurrection. In other words, mm -hmm. a transformed body, uh, a heavenly home, and so on. Uh -huh. If that had happened, then um, we'd be back in paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, that was that was the original belief, and it was a crisis when that didn't happen. When, you know, Christians, uh, deeply Christian folk, died, um, and they had to be buried, and um, mm -hmm. um, and then another story was created. You know, that they're waiting, or they're in purgatory, or they're. Uh, someday Christ will come and they will be taken out of their graves and their second coming uh -huh. and so on. And that kept uh -huh. getting postponed, postponed, postponed. And in the meantime, the church developed its rituals and its doctrines. And so you created the monasteries, which were supposed to be heaven on earth. You know, that's the holy place. Uh -huh. um, that's a heavenly place um, where you spend all day in uh, religious devotion and uh, you live the perfect life. Uh, it's like being in heaven. Uh, hmm. But um, the um, what, what science did, though, was to really disrupt the whole story with uh -huh. um, the discoveries in, in archaeology and anthropology and um, examining the biblical texts more carefully from a literary and scholarly point of view. That whole story hmm. was just ripped to shreds. And that produced a huge crisis, the, the conflict between science and religion. Mm -hmm. And Jung's father was very much caught up in that crisis. He writes about it in his autobiography. Um, and Jung solved it for himself by taking the stories symbolically mm -hmm. um, to treat them as symbols, as metaphors. They tell uh -huh. us something important about the human condition, but don't take it literally, because science isn't going to agree with you, and uh -huh. science knows the facts on the ground in the material world. Hmm. So it's a hopeless struggle against science hmm. if you're going to pit mythology against science, uh -huh. uh, unless you find a way to say that mythology is significant and it tells truths about the inner life and the spiritual life, but not the physical world. Hmm. Um, so there are many myths of creation, uh, yeah. different cultures. The biblical myth is one among many. Yeah. Um, and there are different accounts for why human beings are, are flawed. Mm -hmm. um, the psychological account is that uh, we do have an animal nature. We are mammals. Hmm. And animals have instincts, and we have instincts. We have a body. We live in a body. The body is a part of our self. It's a part of our wholeness. And we can't deny it without consequences. So um, uh, the, uh, the denial of the body that uh, Christianity attempted, the denial of uh -huh. the physical body and physical needs, um, uh, was a, a detour, let's say, maybe a necessary one. Jung didn't think it was a bad idea that okay. the first thousand years of Christianity focused on perfection, and the second thousand years has come to represent a descent into matter and really mm -hmm. um, uh, 
uh, created uh, a very different type of uh, orientation. But that mm. original uh, move into the spiritual world was necessary in order to um, uh, increase consciousness out of the pagan um, um, uh, predecessors that uh, uh-huh. were quite content to live in a in a um, materialistic and, and uh, sensual world. Hmm. Um, although there were also Stoics and, and philosophers in the ancient world and mystics and so on. Yeah. But, um, uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you explain, you mentioned like for you as a Christian, Christ is the best or, um, Christ is the, yeah, I'm just going to say best for lack of better words. Christ is the best example of the divine. Christ is, Christ is the, uh, Christ unifies time and eternity. Um, okay, can you explain that? In Christ, you have a human being, a temporal Jesus of Nazareth walking around the hills of Galilee, hmm. um, but also at the same time embodying um, the divine. And this becomes increasingly clear in the Gospels as his life goes on and it's, and it's um, illuminated or revealed in, uh, in his last days and in the crucifixion and resurrection and so on. Hmm. And so that union of time and eternity, which is, I think, the ultimate statement about the meaning of um, life, the meaning of the universe, that it is temporal and hmm. material on the one hand, but it is also um, uh, spiritual and pure light uh, on the other, uh, uh, comes together in the, um, in the figure of Christ. And uh, uh, so for me, he's the perfect symbol of um, the union of the opposites of um, time and eternity. Uh, is that something that we can also? Think, Sorry. Yes. Is that is that something that we can also? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, you, um, I don't know if you've had the experience, but a lot of people um, experience um, what's called the fifth dimension. Uh, that is an invisible spiritual world that you can't see with your eyes, okay? Mm-hmm. There, there's a famous uh, German mystic named Böhme, Jakob Böhme, and mm-hmm. he was a shoemaker. And uh, one morning he was standing in his workshop and he saw the light reflected off of one of his tools. Mm-hmm. And it hit him in a certain way and suddenly he said he could see the invisible world. And he went outdoors, and for an hour or so, he was, it was visible to him. And he spent the mm. rest of his life talking about that. Mm. So that coming together of the material world, the workshop, and the invisible world, you also see in the life of Christ. The disciples mm. saw it, you know. Uh-huh. He uh-huh. somehow embodied that type of material um, existence that could shine, the light could shine through it. So when he says, I and the Father are one, Hmm. that's what he means, that the human and the divine come together in in him and in us. 
You know, when the mm. Buddhists say, the Buddha is within you, that's another way of uh-huh. saying the thing. The Christ is within you. Uh, uh-huh. You also are that. You are material and temporal, and your body gets old, and time goes on, and you can't do things you could earlier. That's real. Mm. Time is real. Mm. But so is the eternal. You're also immortal. You have an immortal soul. And mm. this coming together of these two um, in the figure of Christ is for me the ultimate. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Daniel. Uh,